Hi, everyone, and welcome to the BCGU podcast. My name's Stefan Aviash, and I'm your co-host. I want to thank everyone who took the time to reach out to us about our first episode. We really appreciate the feedback, both the good and the bad. Now, a few months ago, Treasurer Paul Finch and I had the pleasure of sitting down with two BCGU members, Jen and Judy. We had the opportunity to ask them about their work and honestly to hear some quite frankly shocking stories about how the housing crisis is affecting some of the most vulnerable people in our province. I know I learned a lot and uh, I hope you'll find it interesting too. Enjoy. Hi Jen, hi Judy, and welcome to the BCGU podcast. So by my count, there's four of us now in this room, uh, which means that we're officially in a union meeting. So before we begin, can you both introduce yourselves uh, by letting everybody know who you are, what you do, and how long you've been a member of the BCGU? So I'm Jen. I work at a transition house in the Lower Mainland. I've been a GU member for the last 13 years. Hi, I'm Judy. I also work in a transition house in the Lower Mainland, and I have been a member 16 years. Thank you so much uh, both for coming. It's really great to have you here. And um yeah, I really appreciate taking the time to, to come on here and, and the work you guys do is so incredibly important. So I just want to drill into some of that and talk a bit about it. And, and I think one of the, you know, one of the main reasons I wanted to do this episode is to really um, talk about kind of the, the, the real lived impact in your work of the affordable housing crisis in the lower mainland. Uh, and I think, I think it's relevant for the whole province and it's relevant for the whole membership. We've seen a lot of that, but um, really, really excited to kind of drive into that. And it's, I think it'll be slightly more interesting than people listening to me talk about economics for half an hour, <laughs> 45 minutes. All right. Well, let's kick it off because I know very little on the subject. And I'm very eager to learn. Where do you work? What's the transition house? So a transition house is a home environment for women who can, who are leaving or at risk of uh, violence. And they come and they normally would stay for 30 days. For anybody who hasn't been to a transition house before, they look like a regular house on a regular street. If you drove past, you would never know that it was a transition house. And so most of them are set up where women and if they have children, they share a bedroom and the rest of the house is communal. So shared kitchen, shared bathroom, shared living room with the other women and children that are in the house. And they vary a little bit depending on what house you're in, but really the, the focus tends to be around uh, support and advocacy with legal issues, whether that's around child protection issues, family law issues, uh, or criminal um, any kind of criminal involvement that they might have because of um, violence that may have happened in their life. Um, the other focus would be around housing, which is what we're going to focus on today and helping women to be able to secure safe, affordable housing, as well as any medical issues that they might be dealing with. And then the final main area is around financial support. So if they don't have any paid employment, then looking at other community resources, like helping them to get on income assistance or other kind of disability benefits, whatever that might look like. But then of course, there's all of the other gray areas, depending on whatever comes up in their day-to-day life. So how many people do you typically house in your transition houses? Right now, so we are two 10-bed transition houses, and we are full all of the time. So it depends on their stay, how long they're, how many children they have, but we are full or over full um, all of the time, and most transition houses are right now. 
Let's just dive right into really the, the change that you've seen. So I think, you know, we first saw this massive rise in the price of rent, uh, a, cra- a collapse in vacancy rates. So just very, very tight vacancy rates across the lower mainland about a decade ago. And do you guys all remember what it was like then? Do you, was that kind of the transition point that, that you guys saw happen? Was that the, the big change point for you or what was your work like back then? When did things start to change for you guys? We did see it 10 years ago, but what I think for me, um, my experience is the last three years has become really tight where we're seeing women not being able to rent housing, um, possibly staying in relationships because they know that they're not going to find housing. Yeah, I think I would say probably going back 10 years ago, it was hard, but it was possible to be able to advocate to help get women into subsidized housing, whether that was through BC Housing or through other nonprofit organizations. There was also more availability of second stage transition housing. So those are longer term um, independent living, where, but where they still get help and support from staff. Some organizations through transition houses typically um, that will have either townhouse or apartment like buildings where women would live independently in their own unit. They would pay a rent portion, which is generally either their shelter portion from income assistance or 30% of their wage. Um, And then generally they are staffed, single staffed, generally Monday to Friday, nine to five, to be able to help provide the same type of support that they do in the transition house, but women live there more independently. And depending on the organization, the stay ranges anywhere from three months to two years generally. We used to, back 10 years ago, be able to help women get into second stage housing or to get into some of these subsidized housing programs or just the cost of rent was less. So women were more likely able to get into private rentals. But I absolutely agree with Judy that over the last... I think it probably started hitting really hard about six years ago when Mm -hmm. we started to feel it. And then definitely three years ago, it started to almost feel like an impossible feat to be able to help women to find safe, affordable housing. Were you guys guys always every bed full, both houses back 10 years ago? Was that that normal or is that something that's changed? That that's changed. Yeah, that's definitely changed. And so, you know, like what Judy was saying earlier, it's not just that we're at capacity, it's we're typically over capacity. So um, I forget what what our stats are now, but it was something like last year out of the 12 months, nine of those months, our transition houses were above capacity. Um, And when I say above capacity, I mean running at about 150%. 150%. Yeah, running at about 150%. And it is not unusual for all transition houses between Squamish and Hope to be completely full, which also limits access for women, not only who are trying to get in right now to space, but also women who are preparing and planning to leave because if they know that there aren't any spaces available for them, then they aren't even in a position to start making those steps around planning. But it also has other safety implications because oftentimes it isn't safe for a woman and her children to remain in her community. And we need to either relocate to another area in the lower mainland or out of province. And if everywhere is full, there isn't anywhere for her to transfer to to be able to start those steps of relocating. When did it, when did you start getting to the point where you're regularly running it over capacity? I would say about two years ago. Two years ago? Wow. Yeah, maybe, maybe even longer. Wow. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. It's just gotten worse since then. Yeah. So what's it like for the people that you're helping when they 
do you try to make the next step and and find somewhere else to live to rent more long term? Women that are staying in our transition house, um, so their average search would look like um, they're looking on Craigslist, they're looking on Kijiji, they're looking on Marketplace, um, all of those things. And there's hundreds of people also looking. Um, so when they come in and, you know, they, they maybe have multiple children, um, they are possibly on income assistance. Um, they are the, the bottom of the list for the landlords. Those are the people that that are not going to get rentals. Um, they, if the landlord knows or finds out that they're fleeing domestic violence, that again is going to go against them. They're not going to get those housing. The women or couples that are coming in and they're working full time and they've got references, um, those are the people that are going to get these these houses. And in your experience, the folks that are successful... About how much are they paying in rent? What would be affordable would be anybody who's on income assistance. Those checks are divided into two portions. There's the shelter portion, um, which is for rent and any costs associated with rent. And then there's support portion, which is for everything else. And so um, typically for a... For a single woman, um, she would be looking at a rent portion of three seventy five. Would be what that she's budgeted for. There isn't anywhere in the Lower Mainland that she can rent for three seventy five, and so oftentimes women are then borrowing from their support portion. Which so if you're looking at a total check of around seven hundred and ten dollars, there isn't a lot to borrow from to be able to supplement your rent. So even if you spend your entire $710 on rent and try to access the food bank or other community resources to make ends meet, you're still not going to be able to find a rental for $710 a month. So what we're seeing is rents that are generally for like a one bedroom apartment, depending on where they are, anywhere from about 1100 to they could even be $1,400. Um, and sometimes that's even plus utilities. So oftentimes women who don't have children are looking at shared accommodations um, and that has a whole other host of problems that we can talk about in a bit. And what we're seeing is for women who have children, they're using their child tax benefits to be able to supplement their costs of rent. Right. So if there's nowhere affordable to go, then folks essentially end up staying at the transition house, right? So it's almost guaranteed that the the women that are staying with us are going to be extended. And you, they're usually about a three-month extension uh, or two-month extension. Wow. So they come in with a 30-day plan, like, to, to move on. Um, but they're usually, they're not going to be finding housing in that time. So it's going to be a three-month stay. The folks that do manage to find a place to rent, what kind of place are they ending up in? They are finding places because they're desperate. So they are going into often very precarious situations where they have applied to ads on Craigslist to try to find housing and they are getting sexually harassed. Um, women are gone in and there's lots of scams out there. So their deposits are, their damage deposits are being stolen and there's no place that was actually ever available to rent. And they're doing that because they walk in and right now they're up against a hundred, two other people, hundred other people who are applying for that union. And if they are on income assistance, the process is lengthy to be able to get a damage deposit and to be able to get rent. So what has to happen is they first show up, um, meet that landlord, and if they can convince them to rent to them, which is a whole feat in itself, they then have to get a shelter information form that's filled out by the landlord, which then says that they're on income assistance, and there's a whole other host of discrimination that comes along with that. 
then they submit that form into income assistance. And it takes on average five to seven business days for them to process that request, get them the damage deposit that they need. And so people who are employed who show up with cash in hand mm-hmm. to be able to pay that damage deposit are way more likely to get the place rented. I can't even imagine uh, a five to seven business day wait in this housing market. You know, I, I mean, you see people climbing over each other to, to scoop up any apartment, especially on the affordable range, right? Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's plenty of luxury condos out there if you've got, you know, three or four grand a month. But you, you look at, I mean, you look at the, the, the just the total lack of affordable housing out there. And uh, I can't imagine a place lying uh, unrented for seven days while that process was taking place. I've, I, you know, I've almost never heard of that. Like it just seems, it, it just seems surreal. Yeah. And so then oftentimes the landlords that are willing to wait are also taking advantage of the people who are renting there. And absolutely, I agree with Judy, we see it all the time, is that then then, um, women end up coming back into the house and there are not enough shelters available for women and children who are at risk of violence because they're homeless, but they aren't actively fleeing from domestic violence. There aren't enough of those spaces available. And so transition houses are the ones who are also providing support. So what what does that look like? I mean, when people are feeling unsafe, um, they're going they're going into like risky situations because they need a place to live. Is this is like sexual harassment from the landlords? Is this, are, and are, are we talking mostly like secondary suites and homes, or or is this like strata rental in in a condo or an apartment building? Most yeah. of them are basement suites. Yeah. Um, and what it means is, women are accepting you know places that are possibly dirty or or too too small for their families. They're taking one bedrooms with multiple children, promising sexual favors to landlords. Yeah, uh, places that are infested with rats yes. or cockroaches, places yeah. that are dilapidated. Yes, in basement suites, but also people, because they can't afford a full suite, are renting out rooms. Mm-hmm. And those rooms don't always have locks on them. And so right. So the reality is for a lot of the women that we work with who don't have a lot of um, social supports and who don't have a lot of other financial resources that they can tap into. A lot of the women that we work with are faced with the decision of returning to their abusive partner or entering into sex work to be able to find housing and keep housing. Can you speak a little bit about the impact that that has on you as a worker? You know, you're both obviously very passionate. You've worked in the field for over 10 years and no matter how hard you work, things just don't seem to get any better. That's got to be difficult. Um, I, I see people starting to lose hope. Um, you know, that's our job is to, to support her and to have her move on and, and for her to do well. And, you know, as, as the years go on and we see more and more of this, it, it's the staff get burned out and beaten down and they're just, it's, it becomes hopeless. Um, we keep trying. And, and it, feels like it gets to the point where you can't even do your job, right? If part of your job is helping women to be able to secure safe, affordable housing, when that isn't even there and available. Over the years, the way we've been able to do it is the same kind of grassroots feel that Transition Houses started from is connecting with other transition houses and connecting with other support workers and making contacts in other nonprofits and who are running second stages or who are running subsidized housing units. But everybody is up against the same thing. BC House right now the wait lists are astronomical so when you're looking when when women are staying at a transition house because they fled fled from violence they're given priority on bc housing wait lists well that priority list is still at least five years long 
Five years? Five years at wow. a minimum. Minimum. So that's not helping women now. Wow. And and if they don't keep in regular contact with BC housing, they get cut off the wait list. If they don't, if they secure any type of housing in the meantime, they're cut off the wait list, right? So um, so where are families waiting in the meantime? Yeah, that's, that's not even really a wait list at that point. No. You know, because there's, there's no way someone's going to uh, check in regularly, you know, to do that and, or, or not be able to not secure additional alternate housing in five. Um, I, I assume outside of some really strange circumstance or exceptional circumstances. Yes. Yeah. And so back to what Judy was saying before is that when the average stay has gone from 30 days up to now three months, because that's how long it takes, um, is then it means that we don't have the same turnover in the houses, right? So then there is not the same beds coming available for women who are fleeing violence today. Yeah, it's a, it's almost like the housing crisis has turned your workplace into the housing solution. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if transition houses aren't the transition anymore, if that's where people go and maybe stay for three months or, or longer, where are all these other vulnerable folks going? And that's a really scary thing to think about. Well, and that's what we see frontline, right? We get the calls from the hospitals who are saying we're discharging people and we have nowhere to discharge them to. Do you have beds? No, we're full. We get calls from shelters saying we have this woman who is here with us and we don't have any space for her or what we have to offer her is not safe. Do you have room for her? No, we don't. Um, getting the calls from other transition houses who are getting calls from women trying to find safe space for someone. Calls from the RCMP saying we're here at a woman's house. She needs a safe place to go. Do you have space? No, we're full. Like constantly having to say no absolutely takes a toll on you as well. And so we do our best, right? We connect with other houses. We try to bridge around uh, for women to make referrals on to connect her somewhere. Um, but the the choices become where they're, they're, they're not viable options, right? How long ago did, did this phenomenon start happening again? I, and I, I know I keep asking that with each kind of, you know, um, situation you're providing, but like what, like when did, when did it come to the point where workers in this field um, had to start saying no uh, to these calls because of just the, this 150% capacity issue happening? We started feeling like a crisis situation was happening about three years ago. We're turning away probably easily five or six women with their children a day. A day? A day. Yeah. A day. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's unreal. Yeah. I had no, I, I, I thought I knew a bit about this, but I had absolutely like, you know, coming into this, inviting you guys to come and talk about this. I had no idea. It was like five women with their children a day. That's yeah, yeah that's absolutely, that's, that's unconscionable. You both work front lines. Obviously, you're not involved in laying out the policy decisions of your employer or the government. But is it your sense that the folks who do have the power to make these changes are aware of what's happening on the ground? They're very aware. They have put something in place recently, which is called um, HPP or the Homeless Prevention Program. And so that is a a lump of money that goes out to community agencies and gets split for help with rentals or help with damage deposits. That runs out very quickly. Usually by this time of the year, um, all the pots are empty. And that, that's money that's funded through BC Housing, but because it's contracted out to different community agencies, community agencies have the 
discretion on yes. how they disperse the funds. So we see huge disparities in what that looks like. So the, the longest you could receive that subsidy for is 12 months. And the most you could receive every month is 450 a month. But a lot of communities are doing it as like a one-time thing for a couple hundred bucks a month because they want to try to spread it out, right? Because they're faced with the, do we provide quality or do we provide quantity of rental supplements, right? There's another rent, like, there's a couple other rental supplements that are available through BC Housing, but the majority of the women that we work with don't qualify for those. One is a, another rental assistance directly through BC Housing, but women have to have employment income in order to qualify for that. And because of all kinds of dynamics of power and control and relationships, women often aren't financially independent at the time that they leave. And so they wouldn't qualify for that. So one of the things we've tried to do as a union is um, we've got this pattern language project and uh, we're trying to bargain in pattern language into all of our agreements to get paid domestic violence leave uh, where possible in, in all of our collective agreements. Um, are you, have you encountered anyone yet that has this paid domestic violence leave on any of their agreements or it's kind of early days, but is it, is that something you think that'll, that'll help in this situation? About five, like like five business days. I haven't seen that yet. Okay. Um, but what I have seen is women who who are employed and they come to, to the transition house, and they have no other option but to take off leave um, and and use their vacation days or their sick days or not be paid at all. And that's been going on for numbers of years, where women are going without funds because they can't work. Absolutely. And in order to secure any type of housing right now, whether it is substandard and unaffordable, it is a full-time job. Women are required to wake up and spend all day on it and going out and meeting with landlords and going to all of these housing appointments. And employers are not giving time off for women to be able to do that. And so oftentimes women are having to quit their jobs or are having to not look for housing and kind of take whatever comes along um, in order to keep their job. So absolutely. Um, and five days is a start. Yeah. Let's pretend the Minister of Housing is listening to this podcast right now. What would you say to them are some of the biggest things that they could do policy wise to make a real difference in the lives of the people that you work with every day? I think we need affordable housing that is, is actually really affordable housing for for people. Um, I think we need more shelters um, because we are the catch-all for women who are at risk of violence who are living on the streets. So we are a catch-all for that as well. We need more transition houses. Um, there needs to be a limit on, on rents and how high we can bump them up, which I know there is, but doesn't seem to be helping right now. I think that's a really important point you're saying, you know, the the, the limits to which you can increase rent. Uh, I mean, that doesn't really help you if uh, when a unit becomes vacant, they can, they lift it by, you know, 10 to 20% or more. Yeah. Which, or more. I mean, we're seeing, we're seeing right now, I think the average in the lower mainland is when a unit becomes vacant, it goes up about 20%. Yes. Right. And, in, in value. So that, that, that's tremendous. And, and there's no vacancy control. There's no rent control tied to tied to the unit. Uh, huge. That's a huge problem because some of these more affordable suites, right, where the the you know maybe somebody is renting out the basement suite as a mortgage helper or something, and it, they baked in that financing. But then, you know, if all of a sudden they can make you know twenty percent more, fifty percent more on it, they're going to take the money that's on the table and, and and jack up the rents. And so you know, 
The other piece to that is that if a woman is living in a, in a, a basement suite, maybe it's an illegal basement or whatever that looks like, and he chooses or the, the landlord chooses to increase that rent, you know, sh- rather than causing a fuss, she will just suck that up and, oh. and take that increase, even though it would be illegal, um, because she doesn't want to lose her housing. She doesn't want to cause any kind of waves for that. How many, how many people that uh, you guys serve, you find, uh, have successfully gone through the entire, uh, tenant arbitration system, the residential tenancy, uh, board system to contest a, an illegal rent increase. Uh, have you heard of that happening? Do people come to you with that or None. they come to us with that? Yeah. But I can't think of a single one who's been successful. No. Um, wow. And partially because they're up against so many other barriers that the reality is, is that trying to go through and fight, they just don't have the resources or the capacity to be able to do it. Um, so, yeah, I can't think of a single woman. Um, at the transition houses that we work with, we are a lower barrier transition house. So we're working with women who are also struggling with mental wellness and substance use, women who have pets or other things that are getting in the way of them being able to secure housing. And so that makes it even more complex to be able to try to navigate through some of those types of systems. So if we can explain, I think for all our listeners, because I think this is a incredibly interesting subject, but it's also... Um, there's a lot of terminology in here. I would just want to break down for people. He said a low barrier transition house. Can you explain the barrier system for everyone and, and kind of how that works? Like what, what the different barriers are and what that means in terms of accessing these services? It's important to recognize that when women who are experiencing violence, that oftentimes there is a solid connection between women who experience violence, substance use, and mental wellness. So when we talk about substance use, we're not just talking about illegal street drugs. We're also talking about prescription meds, alcohol, marijuana use. When we're talking about mental wellness, we're not just talking about diagnosed mental illnesses. We're looking at the impact on their mental health. So whether that's anxiety, depression, just feelings of overall mental wellness. We know that as violence increases, substance use increases, and mental wellness decreases. We also know that because of limited resources, because of staffing, and because of capacity, a lot of transition houses will not work with women who are also struggling with substance use or mental wellness. And so transition houses that take that approach and have that more narrow mandate would be a higher transition house. Transition houses that work with women who are actively using substances, who are struggling with their mental wellness and may not be stable, um, are lower barrier transition houses. And then you have transition houses that are kind of everywhere in between. I did want to ask you about uh, some of the work that you've been doing in the community, in particular, the advocacy campaign in Surrey around secondary suites. Clayton Heights in Surrey has a lot of basement suites in in that area, and they probably four years ago or so they were they were cheaper basement suites. So many of our women would move into that area. So we had a lot of women that that lived in that area. We also um, myself and then another BCGU members, Amanda, um, was also living in that area. Um, she was a landlord. I was a tenant, not in the same unit, um, and so. She, 
during um, probably what was 2015, I think. I'm not sure. Um, the city started, city of Surrey started giving out mass eviction notices due to some parking complaints that were coming in. Um, so they were trying to solve that problem by evicting people out of the basement suites. In, in the middle of a housing crisis. In the middle of a housing crisis, yes. <laughs> and um, also a parking crisis. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yes. <laughs> so um, uh, Amanda had been invited to a bunch of the landlords were getting together at that time and they were trying to work out how they can fix this problem. And so she had been invited to some of these meetings. Um, she told me about it. Um, we decided that we were going to see, put together a rally and and maybe put some pressure on mayor and council in, in Surrey. Um, so we contacted uh, BCGU, um, Carrie Michaels, and she jumped on board with us and she was amazing. She supported us with flyers and buttons and a sound system. And um, so it just started taking off. We, we handed out flyers throughout the neighborhoods and we had a whole lot of support from both landlords and tenants. And so we attended city council meetings, put some pressure on there. So the, then after that, there was a moratorium on the, um, the evictions. And so um, at this time, um, it doesn't seem to be a priority with this mayor that's current. Um, so we're just kind of holding on and seeing what happens with this. Yeah. And uh, no, no problems on the car front. <laughs> Lots of problems with yeah, the car yeah, front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no I, parking. <laughs> I think a really good thing to tease out here is, you know, often in this housing crisis, it gets pitched that, you know, I think when our union collectively or, or, you know, grassroots groups like you guys advocate on behalf of working people that are struggling to get by in this housing crisis, um, sometimes we get these kind of big institutional landlords that try and pit this as a struggle against every landlord versus every tenant. And, and we don't see it that way. I and mean, a lot of our members are people that have, are in single family homes, uh, you know, that, that rent out some suites and stuff. And, and, and I think it's an attempt by, by some of these big institutional investors to, or, or own property owners to really paint it as a situation where it's, they're trying to create a divide between, between the membership. A lot of people, when, when they, uh, rent out a suite, they're looking to help with their mortgage with their housing price. And I think that if we, if we're able to bring down these housing prices properly, but also bring down rents, it's going to help because it's going to help the the single family homeowner be able to afford their place without charging exorbitant rent. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. And that's my experience when we were working with the landlords and the, and the tenants together and the landlords cared just as much as the tenants did about what was happening to the people being evicted. And it wasn't just about the money for them. It was, they cared. They yeah. really cared. They were out there fighting just as hard as everyone else. It's an amazing story. And I think it's also, it was a really, really successful action and something where, um, you know, thankfully we were able to put a, you know, a bit of union resources behind what was really a grassroots led and organized campaign. Yeah. Um, and, and we're, I think we're just thankful you guys reached out and, um, you know, the other, the other thing, and this is, it's a cautionary tale in there too, is, uh, you know, part Part of the inception of, you know, parking gate here was, uh, <laughs> was the fact that you had an increase in density in these neighborhoods without a corresponding, um, alignment of kind of the city plan and all that kind of stuff. And, and, um, we're seeing advocates who say, well, let's just densify these single family, um, neighborhoods. And, and I don't think they realize that there's a limit to how much you can densify it before, 
And, and I think we support densifying those neighborhoods, but there's a limit to where how much you can do it before the entire public infrastructure that's been built out to support those neighborhoods can no longer support that capacity. Right. Um, and it's why one of the things we're doing is, is really pushing for densification along major transit corridors where people have access to uh, all the services and, and kind of the public infrastructure, the schools, the hospitals, um, work, you know, uh, transit to work, everything that that's there. Um, and if, if you're on a major transit corridor, it, it just improves things so much to, you know, and, and I think that's just, it, it's a very side point, but I think it's an important one uh, that will thread into other episodes, but not necessarily <laughs> in terms of this one. Yeah. Well, I don't actually think it's a side point, right? I think it's that when we're talking about solutions and we're talking about how it's a continuum of solutions, it's also all those solutions are interconnected, right? So it's when we're looking at how to have a safe, affordable housing for women, we also need to look at wages and having affordable living wages. And we need to look at bringing income assistance rates up closer to the poverty line. We need to look at having access to safe, affordable childcare. We need access to transit. They're all very much interconnected in order to be able to have safer communities for everyone. I think that many listeners like me are going to have been moved by, by the stories and the work that you do. And I just was wondering if there is any way for people to get involved, to get more information, to volunteer or donate their time? What should people do? I think yes to all of those things, <laughs> right? Um, is that I think that even just by talking about it, right? I think that so many people in the community don't even realize that these issues are going on for so many of the women and children in their community. Um, and I think that especially when it comes to violence against women, it has been such a private issue for so long rather than looking at it as a public matter. And so I think that the more that people talk about it, the more that they take away the stigma of it and recognize how prevalent it is in the community and how much it's needed. I think even just raising awareness is a really good start. Um, as far as finding out more, yes, there's the BC Society of Transition Houses has websites um, that you can go to. Um, I'm sure that the BCGU has all kinds of links around housing campaigns um, that they can go to in terms of putting together letters for members of parliament and things like that. So again, solutions are always have many different parts to it um, in terms of like how we can raise awareness. But I think it's like anything is that it needs to become a political priority for people. I think that's the key there. You know, it really does need to become a political priority. Like we, we as a union, we have the policy solutions. We know exactly what's causing the crisis. We know exactly how to fix it. You know, we like, we've, we've, we've invested the time and the energy and the effort to lay that out from a policy framework to give examples, all that kind of stuff. It's really, you know, in, in the campaign website plug affordablebc.ca, it's more about, as you say, it's the political will to actually do something about the crisis and to recognize that, especially in the last three years, the as you said, the crisis has gotten worse, right? The, the thing that blew my mind today was, uh, among a few things, was really it stood out more than anything else was having to turn away five to six women a day. Yeah. That's over 300 women a month. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's unreal. Um, and I, I didn't realize it was that significant. I, I also didn't realize that you're, you're, you're basically over capacity sometimes by 150%. Right. That that's such a fundamental strain on basic resources and services in, in a province as incredibly wealthy as ours. Yes. You know, yeah. I mean, I mean, this, this is the thing, the context for all of this happening is this in massive increase in wealth. I mean, you think about, you know, the average home prices in the lower mainland being above a million dollars on a small lot. This is an it, there's an incredible generation of wealth that's moved in here an incredible, you know, explosion of, of wealth and, and, and land wealth. 
and that has corresponded to an increase in poverty and an increase in, in this kind of desperate situation and a corresponding underfunding of these services. And I think that, that to me is what, what blows me away a bit is, is it's not, you know, it's not simply we're in an impoverished economy and we're, we're struggling to get by with these services. It's that we're in this booming real estate economy that has seen uh, an aggregate over a trillion dollars of value increased in the last decade in the aggregate price of real estate in the province. And yet still we've got people um, who, who are refused access to these services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, through, through no fault of the, I think the workers in the industry at all, right. It's, it's just, and that's gotta be one of the most difficult things of the job. Yeah. yeah. To look at the disparity is shameful and to have to talk to women about what the options are that avail- are available to them is heartbreaking. Um, and you're right in a country as rich as this, those shouldn't be the options that are on the table for women. I think the shocking part for me, even though I work in the field every day and see what's happening over the last two or three years, who is homeless is now shocking to me. It's not just men or or people who have substance use issue. It, it's women and children that are that are homeless. And that's the shocking part. And that's the part that needs to change now. Yeah, absolutely. I'd agree. When when we talked before about getting calls from other frontline organizations who are also at capacity and trying to find space, um, I have received a number of calls over the last while from shelters who have older women who have fled violent relationships who, because they have a small dog or a small cat, are on a mat on the floor in the middle of a homeless shelter because there's no bed anywhere else for them. Um, and it's heartbreaking yeah. and it's shameful. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. It's incredibly shameful. I thank you so much. Uh, I think for coming on and for sharing your time and also for all, all the work you do, I think on behalf of people in the province, but also, uh, on behalf of the union, I mean, you're both you know, very accomplished, um, labor activists and it's just a real privilege to have you, uh, come down, come down to headquarters and, and talk with us for a bit. Thank you. Great. Thank you for having us. All right. Well, that's a wrap for us here at the union. Thank you for listening to our very first episode. If you have any feedback, please direct message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. We're at BCGU. Thanks so much for listening. Bye-bye.